Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Facebook. Today's Wednesday, October 21st. Oil prices are down, Bitcoin prices are up, and we're focused on the United States versus Google. Yesterday, the U.S. Department of Justice filed a 63-page antitrust lawsuit against Google. Haven't read it yet? Just Google it. And yeah, that's the problem. Google isn't just a company. It's a verb. And DOJ argues that its search and search advertising dominance goes well beyond consumer preference and into consumer abuse, basically forcing us to use Google search and then bend to all its privacy and data collection practices. And for you iPhone users who don't think you use Google search, it's probably worth noting that it's Google search that powers Safari. Google, of course, argues that what DOJ is saying is nonsense, equating itself to a type of cereal on a supermarket shelf. We can pick the box you like the most. But even if that argument proves compelling, it'll only be after lots of litigation, not only with the federal government, but possibly with a large number of states that so far opted against joining yesterday's lawsuit. Not because they disagree with it necessarily, but instead because they wish DOJ had gone further, including other Google services like YouTube. If all of this sounds a bit familiar, it could be because the House Subcommittee on Antitrust recently issued a pretty scathing report about Google and other big tech companies. So we want to speak with the chair of that committee, Representative David Cicilline of Rhode Island, about his thoughts on the DOJ suit and where things go from here. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Rhode Island Congressman David Cicilline. So Congressman, you read, I assume, the DOJ lawsuit yesterday. It is narrower in scope than the report that your committee put out earlier this month. From your perspective, was DOJ too narrow or is this a strong lawsuit? No, this is a very strong lawsuit. This is frankly long overdue, but it should be remembered that the DOJ is engaged in an enforcement action against a particular company. So that naturally is more narrow than our broad review of the entire digital marketplace and the conduct of multiple companies and what Congress needs to do in response to the absence of competition in the digital marketplace. I wonder, DOJ seems to be arguing in part, because obviously they brought a lawsuit, that current antitrust laws suffice, at least vis-a-vis what it's arguing with Google. Do you disagree with them on that? Because the House report suggested, among other things, that Congress needs to act and basically update antitrust laws. Well, I think they're both true. I think there is ample justification for the complaint that was filed yesterday. And I think it is consistent with the evidence we collected during the course of our investigation that Google is a gatekeeper to the internet. It has a monopolization on search access. And it has used that monopoly power to crush competitors, acquire competitors, exclude competitors, all kind of traditional behavior of a monopolist. So I think there's ample evidence to support the complaint, and I have no doubt the government will be able to prove it. Our investigation reveals that we need to update our antitrust statutes to make it easier for antitrust enforcers to do their work, to really comply with kind of the changing economy. Our statutes were written at the turn of the century in response to the railroad and oil monopolies. It's quite a different economy now. We need to change some presumptions in the law, reverse some of the narrowing that court decisions have imposed on antitrust enforcement and make sure antitrust agencies are staffed properly and researched properly. But we have the responsibility of looking at policy and making sure antitrust policy reflects the kind of current requirements to promote competition and is working properly. 
the enforcement agencies are then charged with actually doing enforcement actions. So there are different responsibilities. So let me ask about yours. You talk about how you feel there needs to be an updating of antitrust law. Where is that in process? And from your perspective, I know that you and your Republican colleagues on the antitrust committee came out with different reports. There were some disagreements about what should and shouldn't be emphasized in the report. But generally speaking, do you think there is bipartisan agreement in what needs to be done from a new or revised rule perspective? Absolutely. Look, the entire investigation was bipartisan. The Republicans on the subcommittee accepted all of the factual findings, which is the bulk of the report, and many of the recommendations. So I don't think it's surprising that we won't have unanimity on every single recommendation. The report provides a menu of options, but there is broad bipartisan consensus that this marketplace is not functioning, that these are monopoly companies that are exercising tremendous market power because of their dominance, and that we have to work hard to bring competition back to the digital marketplace. And I think there will not be agreement on every single solution, but there is broad consensus about the problem, about the importance of solving it. And now we'll get to the hard work of drafting legislation to do just that. Would you expect that there'll actually be drafts or that you will file that sort of legislation early in the next Congress? Well, I, it's my expectation that we'll file some legislation this Congress and the latter part of this really? Congress just to begin the discussion, but the bulk of the legislation will be introduced in the next Congress. I'm curious about what you think you can get done the next couple of months. What would be the headline goal of the legislation you would file, as you say, to get the ball rolling this Congress? Well, we're in discussions right now with members of the subcommittee, both the Democratic and Republican members, and we'll develop some consensus on which pieces of legislation we should start with. But I want that to be the kind of collective decision of the entire committee, not just mine. Fair enough. Can I ask, you know, you talked about Google and its practices, arguing that they're monopolistic. Google responds basically saying, this is a consumer choice question. There are other search engines and not just startup ones. There's, you know, Bing, which was created by Microsoft, certainly a company with plenty of marketing resources and technical resources. It basically argues consumers have chosen the better product. Are they wrong about that? They are wrong about that. Look, Google captures 90% of all general search queries in the United States and 95% of queries on mobile devices. They've been able to obtain that market share, not because they've competed fairly and won on the merits, but because they've engaged in a number of anti-competitive practices that have allowed them to use their dominance, to grow their dominance, and to keep others from competing on a level playing field. They've imposed contractual terms on mobile manufacturers that require them to pre-install and in some cases give default placement to Google search, and in some of them to prohibit manufacturers from installing any rival search engines. Google pays Apple billions of dollars a year to secure default status for Google on Apple devices. Can I ask about that though? Isn't one of the reasons for that that if I buy an iPhone, typical American consumer prefers Google and I want Google on my iPhone? No, but that's because of the market dominance they have because as a result of their monopoly power, they have prevented others from entering that marketplace and competing fairly. And they're using their market bear not to help consumers, but to grow their bottom line, to grow their market share. It has resulted in a decline of innovation, a cost on consumers as a result of that, and the absence of real competition. Can you unpack the cost on consumers? Because I think most consumers would look and say, Google's free. No, well, Google's not free because you will know that Google makes a tremendous amount of its money from advertising and from the collection of very valuable data. Basically, they decide winners and losers because Google can change the way their search engine works and put people out of business. And that's the kind of market power they have. They can also make decisions about their own products and services, which disadvantaged competitors will end up degrading quality and costing consumers more. 
I have to ask a personal question. Somebody says to you, oh, you should get takeout from this restaurant in Providence. You go to your laptop. What search engine do you use? Well, look, I'm a customer. I use Google. I use Facebook. I use Amazon. What's your default? If, if someone says really quickly to you, Congressman, you should grab a pizza from this place, get the phone number. You immediately, your default is you go to what? I most often use the default browser that comes up, which is Google. That's the point. You don't really have choices because there's not real competition. The devices I use, it's pre-programmed. And so I can't choose another browser. You know, the DOJ lawsuit, it doesn't have specific remedies in it, but it talks about structural remedies generically. So that reflects the idea of maybe breaking up or having Google divest things. But if it's limited to search and search advertising, which is what the DOJ is doing, again, narrower than what you guys talked about, what kind of structural remedies could there be within that? This isn't, you know, selling off YouTube or maps or, or something like that. I mean, that's getting very far ahead of the litigation, but I know the department will make some recommendations in terms of structural changes. I mean, we obviously have made some recommendations of the kinds of structural separation that some of the platforms could be required to separate out. For example, people who like Amazon that control a marketplace, but also have a private label and sell goods and services that compete with others on the marketplace. That's an inherent conflict. And so you could have structural separation that requires those two functions, those two lines of business to be separated. It could be they're going to look at some acquisitions that Google has made that has given the kind of market dominance that results in over 90% of the searches. But, you know, there's a set of remedies that we have in our report that are kind of more broadly applicable about preventing platforms from favoring their own products and services, from engaging in behaviors that allow them to promote their own goods and services ahead of others or exclude competitors from entering onto their platform. So you can have a whole bunch of prohibitions against favoring your own products and services, preventing people from excluding competitors in that platform. Those could be considered structural as well. Final question for you. The lawsuit filed by DOJ yesterday includes 11 states attorney general, all Republicans signed on. Other states attorney general who are investigating this on both sides of the aisle have not said that they don't approve of the DOJ lawsuit. They're just, quote, not ready yet. They're not there yet. Do you think this lawsuit happens to be coming now, two weeks before the election, because it's two weeks before the election? Or do you think that has nothing to do with the timing? I don't know. I mean, the, the lawsuit is long overdue. I'm pleased that on, you know, two weeks after we released our findings of our bipartisan investigation, they finally filed a complaint. But look, I think there has not been robust antitrust enforcement at the DOJ for a very long time. I'm pleased that they're finally beginning to do it. I don't know that two weeks before the election has any significance. Congressman David Cicilline of Rhode Island, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. What we're watching today is a very different DOJ lawsuit, this one involving opioids. Oxycontin maker Purdue Pharma has pled guilty to three criminal federal charges and will pay out more than $8 billion. That's a lot of money, but the deal is already facing criticism, including ones in New York and Massachusetts, for not going directly after company executives or owners, like the Sackler family. So expect further prosecution, probably from state AGs, as today's deal doesn't give the Sacklers immunity from criminal liability. What we're also watching today is the Biden campaign, and if it'll begin tipping its hand when it comes to possible cabinet appointments. Obviously, Biden himself is mostly focused on winning the race and is said to be a bit superstitious, but he does have to be at least thinking about it, including how to appease all of those different Democratic Party factions. So we asked Axios politics reporter Hans Nichols if a victorious Biden might just announce a whole host of cabinet spots at once so as to head off criticism from allies. 
People close to Biden say he's considering that. So think of it as like the Powell doctrine for cabinet nominations. Overwhelming force. Come in with five or six all at once and say, this is my national security team. Look at how diverse it is. So there's something for everyone, potentially, and you can minimize the sort of criticism, which invariably will come, the criticism, because, look, this is the Democratic Party. And they've swept a lot of their disagreements under the rug for the sake of beating Donald Trump. Those will all come to the fore. The first fight is always personnel. We do know that Biden has a level of comfort with his core group of advisors. So the people he's really close with, he wants them close in the White House. The problem for Biden is that people he's really close with are mostly older white guys. So that gives you an indication that maybe the cabinet will be overweighted on diversity and the White House will be overweighted on the core Biden clan, which is, you know, looks like him. And finally today, we're watching RVs. After a peer-to-peer rental site called RV Share raised more than $100 million in new funding led by private equity giant KKR. The bottom line is that RV sales were already on the rise pre-pandemic, but things have just accelerated since then as people opt for socially distanced travel. And the result there could be lots of new Airbnb-style rental opportunities for companies like RV Share, as estimates are that once you've bought an RV, it sits in your driveway for around 47 weeks per year. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers, Naomi Shaven, and Alex Sugiara. Have a great national pumpkin cheesecake day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.